Let's pray. Father, we thank you that now we get to uh, we get to hear the mind of Christ in the words of Scripture. We want to think like Jesus thinks. We want to think like you think, Father. And so I pray as we look at this passage that you would open it up to us, open it to our hearts, open it to our spirits, that we might understand what you want us to receive from it. We might understand what you mean by it. We give this time to you. Please bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I... uh, This doesn't usually happen, but I, I ended up, you know, you, you study for a passage, it's the same passage, you've studied for it, but this, this sermon in particular got re, uh, rewritten, uh, maybe that's a, too strong of a word, but refocused twice this last week. Uh, first round was going to be uh, more of a focus on words, like what we say, and then uh, second round was really just a focus on Christ's second coming. Third round, and it is, what do we do when the wicked win? And, you know, I'm just, just thinking about the events of the weekend and how we process evil, and I've got to think that, i got to think that the Lord didn't, the Lord had what he wanted it to be this morning, I'll just put it that way. And we'll look at this passage from the perspective of when evil happens and we got to wrestle with why and, and why does it seem to go on. Um, and in light of what's happened over this weekend, I think it's appropriate that we're looking at it from this angle. Would you turn to Malachi chapter 2? <clears throat> For those catching up with us on what Malachi is all about, Uh, Malachi is written to a people that used to be exiles, used to be kicked out of their land. Babylonians did that. And then the Persians let the people of Israel come back to their land. So they, they came back and they, they rebuilt the temple. Uh, it was kind of a letdown because it didn't seem as glorious as the temple in Solomon's time. And, and, and there wasn't like a glorious presence of God in it. So the temple was kind of a letdown. And the walls of Jerusalem were, were not in good shape. And then Nehemiah came and helped fix those. And so what you've got is you've got, you've got people who are just apathetic. And they're kind of like, why should we care? We've been through so much. And we're still being ruled over. And nothing compares to Solomon's temple. So I'm going to give God my worst sacrificial animal. And if I don't like my spouse, I'll just get a new one. What's God going to do? And, and, and so you see them doing these things, making these decisions, and the Lord's just dealing with them and their apathy. So Malachi 2.17 says this. And by the way, all this stuff is in, in the form of question answer. You know, they ask a question, God gives an answer. So here's 17. You've wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he's pleased with them. Or, you say, where's the God of justice? 
chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, that's the priests, and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. As usual, when you're looking at a prophetic word, it often comes out in a pretty strong way, right? I mean, that's, that's the way God is dealing with his people for their, their apathy. Like, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. So here's the question, number one. Here's the question. Why is God wearied? Because God says, you're wearying me with your words, and they're going, really? Why are you weary? Now, now weary is a word that means kind of like tired. Now, now maybe you say, well, God doesn't get tired. So how can God say he's tired? I mean, there's verses that actually say God doesn't tire. And when God rests on the seventh day, we don't really think he was worn out days one through six. We don't believe God gets tired, and yet he's saying, I am tired of what you're saying. <clears throat> maybe you think of it like this. Um, has someone ever said to you, I am sick and tired of your fill-in-the-blank? Now, I'll say this. I'm sick and tired of your lying. Did you hear that when you were a kid? Sick and tired. Does that mean that your lying actually made your parents sick? Did they have to go to the bathroom after you lied? You know, no, you know it doesn't mean that. And, and when you lied, did they have to lay down for a nap? Maybe they laid down for a nap. I don't know. But <laughs> sometimes I'm tempted to do that. No. Um, but when they say I'm sick and tired, what they really mean is this is really frustrating to me. You should know better. We've dealt with this before. I'm sick and tired of it. And this is the way God's speaking. You know, how does an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, a God who's infinite, how does he communicate with people who are so limited in our understanding of him? You know, and he says, I'm, you guys tire me out. I'm so tired of what you're saying. So whatever they're saying, it has to be something they're saying over and over again. This isn't just like one or two people that they're having a bad day and they're like, you know, <clears throat> it's the people I hear over and over and over, and I'm so sick of it. That's what you're supposed to get from this. I am so sick and tired of it. God, you don't get sick. I know. I'm tired of it. What are you tired of? They're saying, how have we wearied God? Well, they should have been able to look at their own lives and say, let's see, what's going on in our lives that's wrong? But, but they're not getting it, and so God's going to spell it out for them. And this is verse uh, 17, chapter 2, verse 17. You say two things. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. And you also say, where's the God of justice? So <clears throat> I'd say what the people of Israel are doing is they're looking at people who sin 
even people who do evil things. So it, it could be big evil things. It could be like a foreign nation taking you over and doing whatever they want with you. You know, that's not cool. It, it could be the evil of, of, of a foreign army killing your people. That, that's bad. Or it could be as simple as just breaking Old Testament commands that you know they're in the Old Testament. You know Exodus, Leviticus, you know Deuteronomy. Like you know that stuff and you know the commands that are in there, but you see people breaking them and it's like, well, worse God than that. Looks like people can do whatever they want. I'd say there's two traps when it comes to us seeing evil things. Whether heinous evil acts like the one last night, or just seeing people around us breaking the commands and just saying, who cares? You know, When we encounter sin, when we encounter evil, there's two traps we can fall in. Trap A, we can say to ourselves, God really doesn't care about evil. I mean, they're saying, actually God delights in the person that sins. When they break the commands, God actually, he doesn't care at all. He's going to keep blessing them. He doesn't care what they do. God doesn't care about evil. That's a trap. When you see people sin, and yet it looks like in other places they're really blessed. Maybe they're blessed with wealth. Maybe they're rich. And you say, if God really cared, he wouldn't let that person stay rich because do you know what they did? I've had that exact scenario. I've thought that exact thing. That I mean, just, just seeing a person and knowing what they did and knowing that they're still being blessed, it seems like. And you say, well, why not, why, why not me, right? It seems like God doesn't care that they did that because life still seems to be going pretty smooth for them. That's a trap. Trap B looks like this. If God does care about evil, certainly he's not going to do anything about it. He doesn't seem to be acting. doesn't seem to be acting. So, so trap A is more like, um, maybe in a very cultural way today, sometimes I hear Christians say this. This person, they'll talk about somebody and they'll say, this person does this sin, but they love the Lord. <clears throat> and I don't know, depending on what they're talking about in the context, you know, I, I could see how someone could fail and sin and they love the Lord and they repent. But when someone's not repenting and they're not confessing sin and they think it's okay, and then you say, and they love the Lord, I, I don't get that. I don't get that. But, but I hear that sometimes. They do this, but they love the Lord. Like that just excuses what they do because they love the Lord. Like, ah, they ought to care about their sin the way God cares about it. Don't fall into the trap of saying God really doesn't care what you do. He's okay. Um, the second part is trap B, God won't deal with the evil, which is more like God doesn't want you to do that sin, but he's either way too loving to do anything about it or he has other things going on. He has bigger things to work on than that thing. God won't deal with it. He won't deal with the evil. Now, um, if you're a kid here, let me explain what I mean, kids. In, in a very, in, in, in a going back to my past, um, I went to a very—I told you this before—I went to a pretty strict Baptist school. I mean, I mean, they, they had they had lots of rules. <clears throat> and when I was in fourth grade, 
we had a first-year teacher. So our class had to break her in. You know what I mean? <clears throat> kids, that means... You, you know this, kids. Don't tell me you don't know this. When you have a substitute and you know they're not good at keeping control of the class, I know what you do. I've heard about it. Kids. So listen, kids. Um, we had a first-year teacher, fourth grade. And I started noticing that people were getting away with things. People were breaking the rules. It got so bad that, that one time I saw a kid crawl on the floor. It was like homework time. And I saw a kid crawl on the floor all the way across the class to talk to his friend on the other side of the class. And then crawl all the way back and get away with it. I'd never seen that before. I mean, this is a school where I, one, one time I was in chapel singing the hymns and I, and, I, and, I, and I rested my hands on the pews in front of me. And, and my teacher said, you don't need a hand rest while you're, while you're singing, okay. You know, <laughs> don't rest your hands on the pews. I mean, that's pretty strict. Um, so, over time, I saw that people were getting away with things that I would never do. I would never, I would never crawl across the, the floor to talk to my buddy on the other side. And I saw people pass notes all over the place. I don't know how it is with note passing these days, but, you know, it's always been a thing, right? Uh, and so finally, finally, I was like, well, I'm getting in on this, you know. And so I started passing notes. And I, and I wrote this note, you know, and I can't remember what all I wrote. All I know is it was to a buddy of mine, and it, and it was talking about maybe what we were going to do after school. I'm not sure. But um, the teacher saw it. And of all the people, which just goes to show I'm really bad at getting away with, trying to get away with things, uh, she picked it up and she read it. You know, that classic, I'm going to read your note to the class. She read it. And, and it's probably not that the note was like, it wasn't like a girl that I liked. That would have been super embarrassing. But, um, it, but it was enough for a fourth grader to be like, I feel so stupid. And, and I wish I would have said, everybody's doing it. But I didn't say that, you know. Kids, let me ask you this. If people seem to get away with things, get away with breaking the rules, does that mean you should break the rules? I'm seeing some heads shaking no. 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 You you shouldn't break the rules just because other kids are breaking the rules and getting away with it. And if you've got a first-year teacher, you would best be good to that person. You should be good to that person. Here's my point for adults. Do you see how easy it is to go from God doesn't seem to be punishing the Persians. They're ruling over us. God doesn't seem to be dealing with the evildoers. So that means I, I'm going to give my worst in worship. Because what does God care? If they can get away with it, I'm going to give my worst. And we looked a few weeks ago about how they were giving the, the blind animals and the lame animals for sacrifice. Who cares? And if God doesn't deal with people that are giving the blind animals, if the priests except the blind animals. They're supposed to be God's representatives. If the priests get it wrong, who in the world cares if I divorce my spouse? That's what they're doing. Do you see how easy it is to go from, they're getting away with it, so why don't I do it? Why don't I do it? It's simple. It's a quick step between God's not dealing with evil and why don't I do evil? It's right there.
What's God's answer to this? What's God going to do? Funny, he doesn't tell them specifically to repent. He does say he's going to do this. Chapter 3. See? I'll send my messenger who prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the government who you desire will come to the Lord Almighty. So these people who are apathetic and they're not caring about God very much, they do want the Messiah to come. They, they, they do want the Christ to come. Free us from the Persians. And later it would be free us from the Romans. They do want a Savior, even though they are growing apathetic. So God says, here's what I'm going to do. Suddenly, that's chapter 3, verse 1. Suddenly, the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. So number two, the solution. Suddenly, the Lord will come. Suddenly. Kind of like uh, when you hop into bed and your spouse's feet are cold. Suddenly, you're shocked, right? Suddenly. Am I going to hear about that one later? <laughs> it's always me. It's always me, right? <laughs> Suddenly, you know, it's, it's your janitor waiting around the corner when, you go down, when, when you're walking down steps and jumps out at you. Suddenly, you know. That hasn't happened here, by the way. Cindy's never done that to me. That was my last church. Um, suddenly. Uh, you're supposed to get that like, like one moment he's not there and the next moment he is there. He's here. Um, suddenly. And so God says, but even though suddenly I'm going to send the Lord to you, um, I'm going to send you a messenger to prepare the way. Who's the messenger? Well, God sends John the Baptist. If you know your Christmas history, John the Baptist is always first. John the Baptist, repent, eats locusts and wild honey, weird clothes in the wilderness. When the religious leaders come out to him, he calls them out. John the Baptist, a messenger is going to come first. Uh, put up the verse can we, where, where Jesus, this Malachi passage is right here in Matthew 11. Uh, Jesus said, this is the one about whom is written, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who prepare the way for you. And no one's been greater than John the Baptist up until now. I'll send my messenger. Okay, so the messenger comes and John the Baptist says, repent, we're making the way ready. And then Jesus comes, Number uh, B, or letter B, I think. First coming, Jesus enters the temple. Now, look at Malachi again with me. This is really cool. I mean, I, I spotted this late in the week. I, I don't know how it, I just, it's right there. Chapter 3, verse 1, uh, middle of the verse. Suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. What does it say? The Lord. The Lord. So, so let me get this straight. Jewish people, during the time of Jesus, got mad because Jesus claimed to be God. And they wanted a Messiah who was only a man, not God. And yet, I'm looking at Malachi 3.1, and it says, The Lord you're seeking. The word is Adon, A-D-O-N, Adon. The, the Lord you're seeking is going to come into his temple. This is a prediction that the Messiah was also going to be God. It's right here. So Jesus comes into his temple. Uh, we know there's a number of times that happens. Uh, when he was a little baby, we can put that up there. As a baby, he was dedicated in the temple, another famous Christmas passage. He was there. 
we know as an adolescent, he was there. Uh, he was asking questions and showing his incredible knowledge as a young guy to the religious leaders. And Mary and Joseph leave and they forgot him and had to come back and, and, all, and all that. He was in the temple as a man. He, he went to the temple. You know, there were, there were the feasts and, and, and Passover. And, and at least once a year, he probably had to be at the temple. Overturned tables. But I think maybe the highlight of Jesus being at the temple is Palm Sunday. If you go back maybe, we talked about this maybe three, four years ago, Palm Sunday. Um, can you put the verse up? <clears throat> this is Palm Sunday. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And, and on that Palm Sunday, Jesus is riding on a donkey. He comes into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. And he looks around at everything. But since it's already late, he goes out to Bethany with the twelve. So, Mark's the only guy that tells us this. That on Palm Sunday, Jesus went all the way to the temple. And I think, in my, at least in my mind, there's a connection here. People are exalting Jesus as king. Hosanna, they're praising him. And the king has entered his temple. The Lord has suddenly come into his temple. Now, verse 2 throws a wrench in all this. <clears throat> but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Right? He's going he's gonna to purify people. And then later it says, <clears throat> verse 5, I'm going to come near you for judgment. So, okay. Um, if you look at the verses again, even though Malachi didn't know it, it seems that between verses 1 and verse 2, there's a gap. So far, the gap is a couple thousand years. Because in verse 1, Jesus comes into his temple. <clears throat> in verse 2, he's coming in judgment. And we're not there yet. Uh, some people call this, um, when, when prophets would talk, it's like mountain ranges. And when you're looking at a mountain range, you can't always see the distance between different mountaintops. You can't tell how far they are away. And so when Malachi is talking, he doesn't understand that there's going to be a couple thousand years between the Lord coming into his temple and the Lord coming back to judge. But we know there's a couple thousand years there. We can put that one up, uh, the next part. Um, it's called the mystery. And Paul writes about it. He's like, there's this mystery. It's not like Sherlock Holmes' mystery. Uh, where it takes someone really smart to know. It's a mystery that you know because you know Jesus. So, <clears throat> verse 4, in reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This is the mystery that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So, what Malachi didn't know is, between verses 1 and 2, we happen. The church happens. And for a couple thousand years, Gentiles are being added to God's people. He didn't know it. It's a mystery. But we know it now. So let's head towards the end here. 
I could have camped on a lot of these different things. There's so much going on here. But let's do D, second coming. <clears throat> when Jesus comes back, this passage says he's going to do two things. Two things he's going to do. He's going to purify his priests, and he's going to judge sinners. It says with his priests, the Levites, he's going to be like, <clears throat> oh, my voice is terrible this morning. He's going to be like a refiner's fire, and he's going to be like laundry soap. <clears throat> when we were, uh, we were just talking about, Chris and I were talking about this, when we were in Uganda um, for a while, we, we didn't know how laundry was supposed to be done, so I was trying to do our laundry. Um, <clears throat> it didn't go well. It didn't go well. Yeah, I'd bend over the tub in the wash basin and try to get stuff clean. <clears throat> Later, after, after I left and Christy was still over there, she hired it out, which is what you're supposed to do. And she would say her clothes have never, ever, ever been that clean. Ever. <clears throat> I mean, they ironed everything. Whites were gleaming. Now, what God is saying here through Malachi is Jesus is going to come back like soap. And I think the idea is, remember in Revelation how we get white clothes to wear? The launderer is going to put us in white clothes. But he's also coming back <clears throat> like a fire. And he's going to refine us. He's going to burn away the bad stuff so that only the gold and silver is left. Um, I've already kind of let you in on the last part there. Uh, it says Levites. I believe that refers to us. There's a number of times in Revelation where it says priests and it means us, the church. I'll show you one of them. Uh, can we get the Revelation passage up? And they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. They're talking about Jesus. With your blood, you purchase men from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So are we just talking about Israel here? Absolutely not. We're talking about every tribe and tongue. And then it says, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That's the Levites in Malachi. If I understand this right, we're referred to here. He's going to purify us. We're the priests. It's us. Another mystery being revealed. <clears throat> so we're, we're cleansed. But for everybody else, in verse 5, he's going to come near and he's going to judge. And he's going to judge the sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, those who defraud laborers their wages, who oppress widows and the fatherless, who deprive aliens of justice. Um, and it makes you wonder, is this like a little list of all the things God sees his people doing? I see you employers that are not giving your laborers what they need. I see that. And I see how you treat foreign people coming into your country. I see it. I'm going to deal with that stuff. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to judge it. Revelation has a similar list, since we're looking at Revelation a little bit here. Uh, you have the New Jerusalem, and he says, Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
you know, you've got these lists in the Bible of people who God has issues with. And then when you read it, sometimes you see that you're in the list. And yet, if you're a believer in Christ, that he died for you, you're forgiven. So let me make a conclusion here. What, What do we do? What do we do when we see evil happening and we don't... What are you supposed to do when the wicked win? Let me suggest two things from Malachi that you should do. Next time you see something bad happen and it causes you to despair or it tempts you and you say, maybe I should start doing this stuff, you know? Remember two things. A, live out your blood-bought purity. Live out your blood-bought purity. Jesus died to make you clean. He's your soap. He's your refiner's fire. If you've been purified, then you ought to live that out in front of everybody else. You act righteous. You do the right thing. If there's a justice issue, if someone's not being treated correctly, you do something about it. You step in. That's why he cleansed you. You're you're a priest. What do priests do? They... They represent God to the people. That's what priests do. What do priests do? They offer sacrifices. They, they do ministry. Everybody here that believes in Christ is in, quote-unquote, I'd say, full-time ministry. You're in ministry. That's who you are. Jesus bought you. You're a priest. Go out and do priestly stuff. Talk to people that are having a hard time in, the, in this life. Deliver the groceries to people. Work at the food pantry. Surprise people with your help. Give people love and support when they're going through a really hard time. You're the priest. Live it out. And when you're tempted to sin, remember who purified you and reject that sin. Don't fall into the trap of saying, well, it seems like everybody else does it. It seems like people in the church do it, and they seem to get away with it. Don't do that. Don't be the kid that crawls across the floor in the classroom. That's foolish. And B. B. Uh, Look ahead. I didn't say look forward to. I said look ahead to the judgment of the wicked. For all these people who think they're getting away with it, God says, I'm going to come near to you in judgment. Nobody's getting away with anything. The only people getting away with something are people that are forgiven. And, and for us, we know we're off the hook because Christ was on the hook. The only reason we're free is because Christ submitted himself to torture, right? So look ahead. Judgment's coming. And when you see evil happen and it seems like God is not acting fast enough to stop it, remind yourself he will deal with every single evil thing that's ever been done. He will deal with it all. Nobody's off the hook. Only the forgiven are free. And if you're free... Let the grace change you so that you stop doing those things. Um, the Bible's written by one person, 
That's the Lord. He inspired the writer. So there's different writers. But the author, capital A author, is God. So I don't think God plagiarized himself when he gave us this message in Peter. Would you turn to Peter for the conclusion? Um, you know, I don't, have the, I don't have my reference in front of me. Can, can someone give me the reference in your notes? It's at the bottom of your notes. 2 Peter 3.18, thank you. 3.8, got it. 8 to 15. Guy can't plagiarize himself, but, you know, Malachi was written over 400 years before Peter. And, and when I was reading this, I was like, this is so similar. It's so similar. Check this out. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, suddenly, suddenly. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Refiner's fire. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? What should you act like? You should act like a pure Levite, right? Yeah, you should. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward. I don't think that means like, oh, you know, uh, we can't wait for people to be judged, but you're looking forward to the day of God and you speed it's coming. You're longing for Jesus' return. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. You say, I'm acting pure. It's the evil I hate, right? Right? Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. And you say, evil's in the world. And sometimes evildoers do pretty well for themselves. God's being patient. He still punishes evil. He still acts in history. We could do a whole message on his sovereignty. He's still actively involved. But when you see evil that doesn't seem to be dealt with, remember he's also being patient. And he wants to call people into a relationship with him. And one day he will deal with every evil act. No one's off the hook. Worship team, would you come up? The message is the same for all of us. We need Christ's forgiveness. If you've never come to him and said, God, forgive me. I believe Jesus died for me. Please consider that this morning. That's our message. That's life change. That's how you become a pure priest. How God makes you and transforms you into what he wants you to be. Let me pray for you. Father, um, Would you forgive me for the times when I wearied you? 
Would you forgive me for the times when I've looked out and said, why do they have it so well? Would you forgive me for the times when I've excused my own sin as if you really don't care? Help me hate what you hate and love what you love. Help me and help us to look forward to that last day when we get to be with you forever and see you with our own eyes. Thank you that we know when you add fire to our lives, it won't be in destruction. It won't consume us. It will just burn away all the sin. Thank you for that verse 6. I think it's chapter 3, 6. Because you don't change. We're not destroyed. You're committed to us. Thank you for being committed to your covenant, your agreement with us to forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen.